Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to worship with you, and that was just a great song to, uh, to, to sing right before this message. And uh, I don't know how many of you got a chance to do this, but uh, Friday night, great night of worship. How many of you were, yeah. Okay, we've had lots of requests to do it every Friday. Not gonna be possible. Uh, but uh, I'm, we will do it again, I'm sure. But that was just a, a great night of worship with uh, Fellowship and Brookwood and Summit and City Lights and Kingdom Life. It was just so, so good. Great time, great time. And uh, hey, if this is your first time here, we wanna welcome you. We're so glad you've chosen to worship with us today. And one of the most important things that we want you to know about us, and this is something that goes way back in the history of our church, is that our great desire is to be a community of grace passionately pursuing life and mission with Jesus. A community of grace passionately pursuing life and mission with Jesus. And that vision statement, that idea about being a community of grace, that's been the cornerstone of this church for the past 27 years, but actually it goes back even further. We used to be called Southside Baptist Church, and Southside was a part of a, of a religious tradition that emphasized rules and rule keeping as a way to be right and to stay right with God. It was an emphasis more on what we do for God than uh, what God does for us. And, and there are still many uh, Christian churches today that approach the Christian life that way. But Way back in the 90s, early 90s, Walt Hanford, who was the pastor here for 31 years before I came on board, Walt read a book that changed his life and it changed the way this church did life. And that book was this book right here and it's a book called Grace Awakening by a man named Chuck Swindoll. The subtitle is Believing in Grace is One Thing, Living It uh, is Another. And uh, I mean, this looks like a cover from the 90s, doesn't it? You don't see books that look like this anymore. You know, like a rose on the front, like, you know. Anyway, uh, Walt's abbreviated uh, way of talking about his story of grace was simply this. I read Grace Awakening and I woke up. I read Grace Awakening and I woke up. And he woke up and he started making changes that radically altered the direction of the church, the life of the church. Changes that led to many hurtful comments made to him and about him and all kinds of conflicts and changes that cost him and Libby long, uh, lifelong friends in some cases. And when I came here, I made it clear that I would build on the foundation of grace that Walt had laid. And you need to know that what you experience here uh, on Sundays and all through the week, you need to know that what you experience here is the result of that great grace awakening that took place over 35 years ago. So yeah, we wanna be a community of grace and now with Jesus, I mean, uh, Jesus, Jason coming on board. Um, <laughs> Jason is Christ-like <laughs> in some ways, but let's not, uh, let's not confuse the two, all right? But, Anyway, with Jason coming on board, uh, we want to multiply communities of grace here in the upstate. But um, it begs the question, like, what exactly do we mean by community of grace? Or what do we, what do we even mean by grace? 
I mean, every now and then we need to go back to the basics and, and review or sometimes relearn the basics of the gospel. Many of you may have heard this story before, but in July 1961, the legendary uh, football coach, Vince Lombardi, kicked off his first day of training camp for the 38 players on his Green Bay Packer football team. The previous uh, season had ended in a heartbreaking loss to the Philadelphia Eagles after blowing a lead uh, in the fourth quarter of the NFL championship game. And so when the players came in to start training camp, they expected to kind of immediately begin where they left off and start to work on ways to advance their games and learn some fancy new ways to win the championship in the new season. But when they sat down, Vince Lombardi held up a football and he said, we're going back to basics, gentlemen, this is a football. And then everybody, any Packers fans here? Oh, no Packers fans. We had a guy in the first service that just shouted out, started clapping when I said, this is a football. Anyway, he was from Wisconsin, as you can expect. But um, so Lombardi, after he holds up the football, he, he has everybody turn uh, to page one of their playbooks, and they begin to relearn the fundamentals of blocking and tackling and passing and catching and rushing and all that kind of stuff. It was definitely not what they expected as players who were at the top of their game. But this hyper-focus on the fundamentals allowed them to win, the, allowed the Packers to win the NFL championship that season, 37 to zip against the New York Giants. And Lombardi went on to win five NFL championships in seven years, and he never coached a team with a losing season after that and never lost a playoff game again. So point is, from time to time, it's good to go back to the basics. And basics for us today is to ask the question, what do we mean by grace? What exactly do we mean by grace? Because preachers preach it, teachers teach it, theologians analyze it, Christians thank God for it, God's amazing grace, we sing about it. But let me, let's start by, let me turn the question just a little bit to you. Like, what comes to your mind? when you hear the word grace. Could be like the gracefulness of a ballet dancer or a quick prayer that you say before a meal or a way to address a person of royal status as in your grace. All those are examples and pictures of, of grace, but none of them carry the deep, God-centered, self-giving definition of grace that we find in scripture. So really the question is, what is true biblical grace. And to answer that question, your first thought might be to turn to the New Testament. And for sure, the New Testament teaching on grace is found on nearly every page. But it might surprise you to learn that one of the greatest examples of grace in all the scripture is found in the story of a man who, although undeserving, was given a seat at the banquet table of Israel's greatest king, King David. The man's name is kind of strange. It's almost unpronounceable. His name is Mephibosheth. Say that with me, Mephibosheth. I wanted to try to come up, I, I, you know, saying it over and over in a message like this, I wanted to come up with a nickname like Phoebe or Meph, but I thought, you know, say David had a Meph problem, that might could be a misunderstood. <laughs> but um, uh, Mephibosheth, was the son of David's best friend, Jonathan. 
and the grandson of David's greatest adversary, the former king, Saul. So take your Bible, paper or digital, and find your way to 2 Samuel chapter 9, reading again today from the New Living Translation, which we like to read in Old Testament stories and narratives. Now, again, if you're new uh, today, we're in a series that we call Royalty, and it's a multi-year series where we're looking at the first three kings of ancient Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, and right now we're looking at the life of David. And I tell you, I absolutely love this story in 2 Samuel 9. I think it's one of the most moving, most beautiful stories in the Old Testament. It's one of the best pictures of grace that you'll ever read, period. And what's really important here is to understand that this little story is meant to help you understand the dynamics of the big story of the Bible. This little story is here to help you understand the dynamics of God's big story of redemption in Scripture, because God put it in the book to help us understand how you and I are to live inside the plot line of God's story of redemption. Why? So that we learn to become people of grace, people who have uh, such a deep appreciation for God's grace that we can never look down on the least, the littlest, or the lowest person on the street. Now, by sheer grace, God has moved David from a pasture to a palace, and he has established David's rule over a unified Israel. But even more, as we heard in Jason's message in 2 Samuel 7 last week, and if you didn't hear that message, you need to go back. That's one of the best messages I've ever heard on 2 Samuel 7. Go back and listen to it. But in 2 Samuel 7, we saw how God made an unconditional covenant promise to David, a promise guaranteeing him that one day one of his, one of his descendants would reestablish God's kingdom on earth. And we know from the big story of the Bible that that one is Jesus, the son of David, uh, Jesus, the greater David. God made David an unconditional promise, meaning that even when David's and his family mess up, even when they sin, even when they run off the rails and fail to keep the promises uh, made, their promises to God, God will not fail to keep his promises to David. And God's covenant-making, promise-keeping, sin-forgiving, redeeming grace will forever rest on the family of David. It's an act of grace on God's part. God's steadfast love and commitment will never be removed. So right here, and you have to get this, right here, David is who he is and he is where he is 100% by God's grace. Meaning he did not earn or deserve to be king. It was all God's doing. And David knows that deep in his bones. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. So one day David asked, is there anyone in Saul's family that's still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And he summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. And he said, uh, king asked him, are you Ziba? And he said, yes, sir, I am. And the king asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yeah, uh, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both of his feet. 
Where is he, the king asked. Well, he's in Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, the son of Amiel. Now see that phrase in verse one, for Jonathan's sake. David is remembering the covenant that he made with Jonathan, and you may remember if you've been here that Jonathan, Saul's son, the next in line to the king of Israel, to be the king of Israel, literally risked his own life, risked the wrath of his father who was out to kill David. He risked all that to protect David. And as a result of their friendship, David made a covenant with Jonathan in which David promised that he would provide for and protect Saul's house forever. Saul and Jonathan died on the same day in a great battle, and one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, was crowned king in place of David, but he was eventually assassinated, which made way for David to, uh, to become the king. But anyway, David wants to keep his promise to Jonathan, and so he wonders if there's anyone left uh, that who he could uh, could show covenant keeping kindness, uh, promise keeping grace, and he's made aware that there's this man Ziba, who was a servant in the household of Saul. And if you look down in verse ten, you find that Ziba was a powerful man to, for, to be a servant. I mean, it says there that in verse ten that he had twenty servants working for him with him. And he had 15 sons. So David calls Ziba in and asks him if he knows anyone left in Saul's family to whom he could show grace because of the promise he made to Jonathan. And Ziba said, yep, uh, one of Jonathan's sons is alive. He's crippled in both feet, living in Lodabar in the home of a man named Makir. And that son uh, is Mephibosheth. And this young man, he had a tough life. He was at one point a, a prince Maybe thinking he would uh, be a future king, or that was said of him. But as I said, in one battle on the same day, his dad and his granddad died. And back in 2 Samuel chapter 4, you read how that after the death of Saul and Jonathan, a nurse grabbed up this little five-year-old boy to protect him. She ran away with him to find a safe house for him somewhere. And somewhere along the line, she dropped him and it crippled him. Very sad. So he's lost his family, lost his wealth, uh, lost his position. He's crippled. He's living in exile out in the middle of nowhere in Lodabar. I think Credence Clearwater Revival had a song, Oh Lord, Stuck in Lodabar Again. I know it's really bad, but I could not resist being a rock and roll player myself. Anyway, so Lodabar is this barren wilderness, desert-like place. So, So Mephibosheth, he has nothing, and he has no power whatsoever to make his life any better. Now, I believe there's a good possibility that Mephibosheth had no knowledge of the covenant that was made between David and Jonathan because he would have been a, a little boy at that time and, and his dad probably didn't come home say, talking about it, uh, especially with, his, uh, with, jo- with Saul around. But, so in verse five, we read that David sent, sends for uh, uh, him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth, his son of Jonathan, grandson of Saul. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. And David said, don't be afraid. Now, 
for Mephibosheth to be summoned by the new king, that would have put terror into his heart because back in the day, the custom was that when a new king took the throne, that king, the new king, would kill off any of the descendants of the previous king so that no one in the line of the previous king would be a challenge to the throne in the future. So the sons of a previous king were considered enemies by a new king. So for all Mephibosheth knew, he was being called to his death. Somebody found him. He was hiding out, and he's been called now to his death. And that's why David begins with the words, do not fear, because he knew what Mephibosheth was probably thinking. Look again at verse seven. David says, I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan, and I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Now, there's three things that I want you to notice here. First of all, David says, I will shower you with kindness, and that word kindness is almost untranslatable. It means covenant love, steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. It's promise-keeping loyalty. I'm going to come back to this in just a few minutes, but the bottom line, it's grace. Now, put yourself in place of this, in the place of this poor, crippled, rejected young man, scared to death as he stands before King David, whose life was made so difficult by this boy's grandfather. And imagine the relief and the shock of hearing the king say, I will shower my loving kindness on you. I mean, it's just amazing. That's not all that David says. There's a second thing he says. First, I will shower you with my loving kindness. Second, he says, I will make you rich. Look at it, look at it. David says, I will restore to you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Of course, as the king, Saul had lots of land and lots of land meant wealth and power. And David says, by an act of of grace, I'm moving you from poverty to riches. Riches you could not possibly earn, riches that you do not deserve. And I think by this point, Mephibosheth's knees are are getting weak and and he's trying to get his mind around what's going on. It just doesn't make any sense to him. But David's not finished because there's a third thing that he says. I'll shower you with, with grace. I will shower you with riches. And third, I will adopt you into my family. That's what it means when he says, you will always eat with me at the king's table. He's saying, you'll live in my court. You'll be in the inner circle of my family. You'll be at my, at, at, at my banquet table. You will be my son. That's what he's saying. You will be my son. And Mephibosheth is completely blown away. He's completely undone by the lavish act of grace. Look at his response, verse eight. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? I mean, he, he, by the way, back in the day, people didn't keep dogs as pets. They were nooses. They, they were despised. They were dirty animals. And so he's, he, he's so humbled, he's so overwhelmed, he just says, who am I that you would pour out such incredible kindness and grace on a dead dog, a useless, despised nobody like me? 
Now, by the way, when Mephibosheth calls himself a dead dog, that's an echo of how David actually referred to himself in 1 Samuel 24 when he had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. And then he has a conversation with Saul trying to convince Saul that he had no intention of killing him. And David referred to himself as, I'm a dead dog. I'm like a flea. Why are you bothering with me? Why are you worried about me? Point being, I wonder when David heard Mephibosheth call himself a dead dog, I wonder if it clicked with David that by God's grace, he himself went from being a dead dog to royalty. And now he's extending that same grace to Mephibosheth. Well, then in verse nine, David begins to act on his commitment to Mephibosheth. Then the king summoned Saul's servant, servant Ziba, and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family, and you and your sons are servants, uh, are, to be, are to be servants to farm the land for him and produce food for your master's household. So even though he's crippled, he sounds like he's married, and we're gonna see a little bit more of this in a minute. He's got a family. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, yes, my Lord King, I am your servant, and I'll do all that you've commanded. And from time to time, from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and so he was well taken care of as, as well. And from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants, and Mephibosheth, remember, crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. I mean, what an amazing story of amazing grace. I mean, don't you wish you could have been in the room that day and watched all this go on? Don't you wish that you could have been present at the banquet table at some point and just watched the dynamics of going on? Chuck Swindoll, in another book uh, entitled David, A Man of Passion and Destiny, he does paint a picture of this for us. He writes, the meal is fixed, the dinner bell rings, and along come the members of the family and their guests. David's son, Ammon, clever and witty, comes to the table first. Then there's Joab, one of the guests, muscular, masculine, attractive, his skin bronzed from the sun, walking tall and erect like an experienced soldier. Next comes Absalom, and talk about handsome. From head to toe, there's not a blemish on him. And then there's Tamar, the beautiful, tender daughter of David. And later on, Solomon will be there as well. And they're all at the table, but then they hear this, they all hear this clump, 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 clump. And here comes Mephibosheth, hobbling along. And he smiles as he humbly takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons. And the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. That's some writing right there. So, on the one hand, this is a simple story about a great king. We got King David who, as the recipient of God's grace, shows grace to someone who is completely undeserving. But remember what I said when we began. I said that this little story is meant to be kind of like a window to help us understand the Bible's big story of redemption more accurately and more fully. And we see this 
clearly in one little phrase tucked away in verse three, when David asks Ziba, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to him. Not just kindness, but God's kind of kindness. The Hebrew word is chesed. Chesed. Say that with me. Chesed. 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 That's the way it's pronounced. Chesed, almost like you're trying to, you know, you know. but anyway. Uh, Hesed, which means, it means unconditional love, like covenant love, the kind of gracious, unearned, undeserved love that God has shown to David and that he's shown to us. Hesed is God's grace showered on people who do not deserve it, can't earn it, and can never replay it, repay it. That's God's grace. That is Hesed. And it, in, in this story, this story is an incredible picture of the redemptive love and grace of Jesus shown to you and to me. I mean, think, who among us having been brought into the throne room by grace through faith, who among us would ever stand in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords because of some good thing we did or because of some bad things we didn't do? No, 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 we, we know. No, we, none of us would stand before the King of kings thinking that we are there because we did something good or didn't do things that were bad to earn or deserve his favor. No way could we ever earn or deserve God's love. And we know that, right? So think about this. This room right here is full of Mephibosheths. We're all Mephibosheth. We were poor, lost, crippled by sin, enemies of God, and what did God do? Well, first of all, remember in this story, the king took the initiative. The king did the seeking, and the same is true with us. God took the initiative to draw us to himself. None of us in this room would be here today if God had not first acted on us by grace. And he invites us to come just as we are. We come to him broken. We come hobbling to him out of fear and guilt. We come as sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, as the old hymn says. And we come to him on the basis of one thing and one thing only. We come by grace alone. We come only because of God's love calling us to himself. And that is something we must never forget that what we have, we have what we have not because of our achievements, not because of how good we are, but simply because God rescued us by his life-transforming grace. Now, think of the great grace-based doctrines of that rescue. Let me just point out a couple of them. Atonement. God paid the debt of our sin. Salvation, God delivers us from judgment. Justification, God declares us righteous. Redemption, God bought us and freed us from the enslavement to sin. Reconciliation, God restores us to a right relationship with himself. Every single one of those great doctrines of our faith flows out of the grace of God because it is God who takes the initiative. It is God who calls us to himself. 
It is God who sets us at his banquet table and we experience his kindness every single day of our life because we have a grace that's greater than all of our sin. So do you see how your story parallels Mephibosheth's story? Okay, so what else did God do? It's so good, second. Out of the goodness of God's heart because of Jesus, he has showered his faithful love and grace upon us. He has showered his faithful love and grace upon us in such a way that he says to us. Now, if you were here last week, Jason just, it was, this was so good. He, he showers his love and grace on us. It's as if God is to say, you have, you're going to have issues, but I'm going to be committed. You will mess up, God, but God says, I am committed. You will sin. God says, I am committed. And sometimes you will not be committed. And God says, I'm still committed. That's grace. That's grace. Like David with Mephibosheth, God has showered his faithful love and grace upon you. That's not all. What has he done? He's made you rich. By grace, he's taken you from moral, spiritual, functional poverty to riches. I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter one. He says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's verse three. Then down in verse seven in chapter one, he says, in Christ, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us in Christ Jesus. And then in Ephesians 2, 7, Paul says that in the ages to come, God will show us his exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter three, Paul says he's been tasked with sharing the unfathomable riches of Christ. And I love what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter one, where he says God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now, how's that for riches? God has given us everything, 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 everything we need in Christ. And that's not all. What else has he done? He's made us his children. He makes us his sons and daughters. How did the apostle John put it in chapter, John chapter one? He said, you are the children of God and that is what you are, not because of your natural birth, not because of position or prominence or wealth or achievement, that you are who you are and what you are simply as a child of God because of his sovereign grace. I am who I am and I am where I am because God rescued me from the domain of darkness and by his grace he made me a citizen in the kingdom of life. Like Mephibosheth, I am a child of the king and so are you. Yes, we've been showered with grace, we've been given spiritual riches beyond our wildest dreams, We've been made children of the king all because of chesed, God's kindness, God's grace showered on us. So you see, chesed is the link from David to Jesus to us. No question about it. This little story points us to the bigger story of God's redemption in scripture. But, we can't just stop with being grateful for the grace that we received. We can't just stop and stand in wonder at all that God has done for us. No, 
there's something basic to grace that all too often we tend to forget. I know I forget it. And if we're getting back to the basics of grace, the next thing that I say is fundamental to rightly understanding grace. Ready for this? We have been graced to show grace. You have been graced to show grace. We have been graced by God to show God's grace to others. The God who graced you wants to grace others through you. God has showered his grace not just for us, but for the sake of others. And so God did not pour out his grace on you so you could put it up on a shelf and look at it like it's some trophy that you possess. Now, now think about how the New Testament talks about all of this. These are all functions of grace. When we're told, forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be patient and tenderhearted toward people just as God is patient and tenderhearted toward you. Love others like Christ loves you. And here in this story, grace others the way that you've been graced. You see, we are to learn an approach to relationships that mirror what God did for us when we didn't deserve it. We're to learn an approach to relationships that mirrors what God did for us when we didn't deserve it. We have been graced to show grace. Now, the flip side of that coin is this. A person who has received grace but doesn't show grace doesn't really understand grace. A person who's received it but doesn't show it doesn't understand it. Now, again, I'm gonna go back to last week, 2 Samuel 7. David had been the recipient of God's extra, extraordinary, extravagant grace. David had wanted to build a house for God, but God said, David, this whole deal is about, not about you giving to me. You're not even worthy to give to me. No, it's about me giving to you. You're not gonna build me a house. I'm gonna build you one. And God says to David, my promise to you is unconditional, which means that, again, even when you and your family fail to keep your promises to me, I'm still gonna keep my promises to you. And David's response to God's amazing grace in 2 Samuel 7 was worship. He sat before the Lord and worshiped in humility and gratitude for the grace that God had showered upon him. In 2 Samuel 9, we see a second response to God's extravagant grace and the second response is David's desire to show God's kindness and grace to poor Mephibosheth. You see, grace has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to it. Vertical grace centers on our relationship with God, and it is, of course, it is amazing. It frees us from the demands and condemnation of rule-based religion. It gives us hope. It brings us forgiveness and eternal life, and eternal life is life that starts now in all of its abundance and goes on forever. And horizontal grace centers in on our relationships with people. Listen, it centers on how we relate to people who have hurt us. 
to people who have offended us, to people who have taken advantage of us, to people we don't particularly like, to people who are not at all like us. Horizontal grace is specifically for people we might even consider to be our enemies. Listen, horizontal grace means nothing if it's not applied in relationships like that. So let's, let's make all this even more basic, kind of like you know the Lombardi, this is a football, and going back to basic. Let's make it as basic as we can. To show grace is to extend God's kindness to people who don't deserve it, can never earn it, and can't repay it. Remember, that's, that's how we define chesed, chesed. To show grace is to extend God's kindness to people who don't deserve it, can never earn it, and cannot repay it. That's what horizontal grace looks like. Okay, so let's run some scenarios. Uh, let's say a family member is particularly troublesome, to say the least. She really gets on your nerves. He always is talking about himself. You just can't stand it to listen to him. She she manipulates things to her own advantage and he's overbearing and over-controlling. Now think about, is there some other things that we need to add there for your family? You know, like, the question is, how could your responses to people like that reflect the idea you have been graced to show grace? Or let's say you work for a boss that's very demanding. She never gives you the credit you deserve he passed over you, gave the promotion to someone less qualified than you. Whenever you talk to her, she's always finding something to criticize, no matter how good that everything else is. What else about your boss? The question is, what would it look like if your response to a boss like that reflected the idea you've been graced to show grace? Or let's say somebody's really hurt you. He said ugly things to you. She's talked bad about you behind your back or she's put you down in front of your friends. He's blown it and you don't know if you can trust him ever again. The question is, what does it look like to respond to somebody like that, to people like that, in a category like those people what does it look like to respond in a way that reflects you have been shown grace to show grace? Let's say you're walking downtown and you encounter a homeless person or you see a group of people hanging out and when you look at them, you can tell that their lifestyles, mm, well, they're just wrong according to the way you think. Uh, or you see a crowd of people protesting something that you have strong opposing views about. Or maybe, or maybe it's not downtown, but, but it, it, it's someone like one of those categories of people who walk through the back door of our church. The question is, what would it look like to show grace, to show kindness to people who you don't feel deserve it? What would that look like? Now hear me, this is not to say that you don't need boundaries with certain people. This is not to say that you don't need to speak up. 
This is not to say that in forgiving someone and extending grace to someone, you step right back into the relationship. Yeah, we are to forgive as we have been forgiven, but sometimes reconciliation takes time in order to rebuild trust, and sometimes, sadly, that's not possible. So yeah, absolutely, sometimes the most loving thing we can do is speak the truth to someone and hold them accountable for the things they say and do. But even in those kinds of things, in all these kinds of things, with boundaries and speaking up and walking through the process of rebuilding trust, in all those things, are we not called to speak the truth in love? Are we not called to have conversations that are seasoned with grace? So the question still is, what does it look like to show God's kindness, the kindness that he's shown to you, to someone you feel doesn't deserve it? Let's go flip side again. What does it look like to show grace by extending kindness by rejecting the desire to be bitter and to get even? That right there, boy, if we could get, if the church today could get our minds around what grace actually calls us or how grace calls us to live, there might be a second great grace awakening. Hesed, from God to David to Jesus to us to others to others. Now hear me, the application to this message is not, you've received grace, now go out there and try harder to show grace this week. Just go out there and try harder. No, that's not, that's, that's not. No, did, David didn't have to try hard to show grace, did he? No, because he was so deeply humbled by the kindness that God had shown him. David said, I want to show God's kindness. I want God's kindness to flow through me. I want the kindness that I've experienced from God to be expressed through me. David wanted to show grace by extending God's kindness to someone who didn't deserve it. You see that? The grace that humbled David motivated him to show grace to others. So the question that I've wrestled with this week, and now I'm gonna make you wrestle with it, is has the grace that you have received become the motivation for you to show grace by extending God's kindness to people you don't think deserve it? Has the grace you have received become the motivation for you to show grace by extending God's kindness to people you don't feel deserve it? You and I have been graced by God to show grace to others. Now, here's the application. Simply invite God to grace others through you. Begin to pray that way. God, I want, like David, I want the grace that I have received to be so deeply 
impressed in my bones and in my heart that I would show that grace. God, would you do that through me? Remember the fuck out, if, you, if you're around here at Christmas time when I preached the message, the forgotten truth of Christmas, and the forgotten truth was the double incarnation that God incarnated himself in Jesus so Jesus would incarnate himself in us. And I said the point of that is that Jesus lives in you in order to live his life through you. I still wake up every day inviting Jesus to live his life through me today. And when he is living his life through me, guess what? Guess what, what happens? When he, Jesus lives his life through you, others will automatically experience his great grace. They will automatically experience his grace. grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for meeting us here today through your word. And as we've worshiped you today, thank you for meeting us in ways beyond our knowing. Thank you for working in our hearts in ways that are deeper than we are aware. Even with the truth, this hard truth. Oh, God, we admit believing in grace is one thing. Living it is quite another but if we're deeply impressed with your grace, what we're saying is we want that same grace to come through us to others. So thank you for your love. It holds us fast even when we are most resistant. And thank you for your grace because your grace keeps offering yourself to us even when we turn our backs on you. And so Lord Jesus, come. Live your life through us so that others will be the beneficiaries of your great grace. And Jesus, we ask this in your name, amen.